before I work on that text with you for a minute, I want to rehearse some of what we talked about this morning by asking this question. What keeps you and me from loving the outcast? What are the hindrances that need to be overcome? And by outcast, I mean anybody that's hard to love. Anybody that's hard to love. You may find rich people hard to love. This text is talking about poor, crippled, lame, blind, that kind of people, tax gatherers, sinners. Not all sinners are poor. Tax gatherers were not poor. So anybody that's hard to love, how do you overcome obstacles to to love them? Now, we've seen several obstacles that need to be overcome. Um, in chapter 14, verses 7 to 11, we saw the love of human glory. They are angling for the best seats, which is an issue that lies behind the indifference to the man with dropsy in verses 1 to 6. So we saw the love of human glory. When you have a love affair with your own status and people noticing you and saying nice things about you and always trying to get into the limelight or associating with with uh, important people so that the importance and the significance sort of rubs off on you and, and this is just the mindset you have, then you tend to be indifferent and callous and unobserving and unenergetic about uh, taking up with the unimportant because it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for what your life is really all about, namely getting, getting glory for yourself. So that's one big obstacle that's in every human heart. And some have triumphed over it more than others by the grace of God. And we're all in the process if we're Christian. Number two is unbelief in the resurrection. Or more specifically, unbelief in the glory and all satisfying greatness of the reward at the resurrection. Verse 14 of chapter 14. Uh, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Now that's Jesus' argument for why you should invite over for supper people that you don't enjoy being around. That's his argument. Isn't that amazing? Invite over for supper the people that are hard, that there's no payoff. It's a black hole of charity. You just... You have them over and nothing seems to happen. They stay poor, they stay crippled, they stay blind, they stay lame, and they there's no payoff. All through this life, until you get to heaven and the Lord says, I saw it, I liked it, and you will enjoy me more than if you hadn't done it for all eternity. So you gotta believe in that. That's gotta be your driving vision in life. Resurrection glory. Because if you have a this worldly orientation all day long, then when the opportunity comes to do something unsavory and lacking in worldly payoff, the inclination will be so strong against it that the motivation will be lacking to do it. That's the second. Obstacle, unbelief in resurrection glory. The third obstacle appeared in verses 18 to 20, where God in this parable is inviting people to a banquet and they make three excuses why they can't come. 
One is, I got a field and I have to go look at it. Verse 18. Another is, I bought five oxen and I have to go look at them. And the other is, I have a wife. So I conclude from this that another great obstacle from following Jesus into the banquet hall of obedience and fellowship with him is ordinary delight in ease and security and comfort and wealth. Now, that's the text we were just talking about here. They began to make excuses. One said, I have some land. And another said, I got five yoke of oxen. Another said, I've married. And, and the slave came back and said, Master, it's not working. The head of the household came angry. Interesting to think of the Great Commission as rooted in God's anger. He became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Same as the same group as back in verse 13. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. Still there's room. Verse 23. The master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in. Go to the highways and go to the hedges and compel them to come in. That my house may be filled. God means to have a full house. God means to have a full house. He, heaven will not be a sparsely populated place. And the banquet hall of God will have a person at every, every seat at the table. Now, I worked on this chapter and chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, pretty much all day yesterday, thinking about he receives sinners and eats with them, thinking about when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind because they can't reward you. There's no payoff in this world. Believe in the resurrection. It's okay. And then I got here and it said, go out and... uh and beat the hedges and go to the highways and compel them to come in. And at 9.30 last night, we were having devotions as a family. This has happened more than once, this sort of thing. And David's story is, is God's, is God's doing today. And maybe we'll, we'll hear some more stories tonight. We were having devotions reading in Luke 17. The kingdom of God is in your midst was the worst verse we were on when we heard this, what I thought was a cat at first. And then it turned out to be, help me, help me. So I go outside and by the hedge, this is what in subsequent reflection struck me so much. Here's a man assaulting a woman. He's lying on top of her, laying on top of her. And he's trying to take her clothes off. And he hasn't succeeded yet, but he's working at it. And uh, and so I I reach over and say, I hit this guy. I say, get off her. And I don't know if she's got a weapon and I'm scared about this. Let's get up. And uh, he's drunk as can be, so he's harmless. 
You know, I never knew that in coming to the city, drunkenness would have great advantages. <laughs> I don't like to deal with people who aren't really drunk. If they're really drunk, then you, can, you can't do much spiritually, but they're not going to be able to hurt you very much. Um, so he got up and tried to say something to me, and he wasn't very coherent. Noel heard him say, it's none of your business. And, and uh, she's got a white cane. Cripple, maybe blind. So this guy's trying to convince me that it's okay, I guess. And I says, get out of here. I suppose I should have gotten it. I don't know what I should have done. But anyway, he took off. So I reached down and get her a little bit fixed up and try to get her up. And I said, are you blind? And she said, no, I'm just a little lame. Use the word lame. I'm just a little lame. It was a cane, a white cane with a handle on the top. So I got her up, and she's drunk. Not as drunk as he was, but she's drunk. She'd been coming home from work. She works over near Cedar somewhere. And uh, and and she was walking home. He accompanies her. He all, learned all this subsequently. He starts walking with her across the bit, bridge and and making a pass at her, and she's trying to get rid of him. And, and, and when they get to my yard, he throws her down, I guess. And uh, so I, I walk her limping over to the steps of the porch, and she sits down, and I tell Noel to call the police. And the uh, police are there within a minute or two. And uh, just to shorten it down, um, I know her name, and uh, if I understood correctly, I think I know her address. The police took her home. While they were doing all the stuff, I, I, uh, I raised her up. I got her up and put my arm around her. She's sopping wet from laying in the grass, maybe because it was drizzling. I can't remember whether it was drizzling or not. And I said, now look, uh, I'm a pastor, church across the highway, and uh, can I pray with you about this? This is really traumatic. And she said, yes. And as soon as I started to pray, one of those lightning bolts just went crack. <laughs> and she just absolutely started and looked up like this. Well, I don't know if that has anything to do with what God was doing, but it happened and it was remarkable. And we prayed and, and uh, she used some four-letter words to describe how she had mucked up her life. And, uh, and I walked her to the car and... Uh, when I got out of the car, she holds out her cheek for a kiss. I presume that's what she was doing. So I kiss her on the cheek. Now, she puts in there, and he says, I think I'll run her by the hospital just to make sure she's okay. And I went back in, and I started to rehearse all this. You know how you rehearse your, your efforts at doing what you're supposed to do? And I felt, I felt good that I'd gone out and gotten the guy off. I felt good that I'd lifted her up and talked to her. I felt good that, that, that I had prayed with her. I felt good that I put my arm around her and I felt good that, that I had handed her over to caring policemen. But I don't feel totally good about this. Because I, I felt inside of me disinclinations to do this. That is to take her into my house. I think we should have taken her into the house. She was absolutely harmless person. She was shivering and she was sopping wet, and she had almost been raped. And uh, 
I sat with her on the porch. Why? Why? That in me needs to change. That needs to change. The, the hesitancy, that, that just gut disinclination to bring a wet, drippy, drunk person into my house. I mean, the carpet is dry, right? I, I wasn't processing anything like that, but whatever it is needs to change. So I think what you, what you see there is a little picture of Christian sanctification. Enough evidences that I had the wherewithal and the willingness to go out and take some risks. Enough wherewithal to at least do this and, and, and enough wherewithal to pray and, and I felt care. And I've got a name and an address. Okay, so now David, he went the second step. And I haven't gone the second step yet. I thought about it this afternoon, but I was working on the preparation all afternoon. And whether that was the right choice or not, I don't know. But you can ask me in the week to come, did you, did you go to that address to find Mary? And uh, I'll tell you whether I did or not. But the illustration is simply... Here I am, and there you are, and we are in process of being made what we ought to be. And God has done a work in us, and he has much more to do. I am not where I ought to be in terms of liberty for love and aggressive risk-taking in my neighborhood. I am very much bound up in my schedule. That's one of my biggest issues. Not so much the carpet as how late will I have to stay up with this person? And then will I have to get in the car? And I have to get up at 4.45 in the morning and I've got to both preach and teach and teach all day. And I've got a special luncheon engagement tomorrow and it's my schedule which causes me to feel an innate disinclination towards Stretching myself with people, which I think needs to change and trust God and walk in here tonight maybe and say, I don't have a lesson. I don't have any lesson because I lived a lesson this afternoon. That probably would have been a better lesson, wouldn't it? Even as I say it now, I blew it again. (laughs) Okay, well, that. hmm. God is at work in us. But we have a long way to go. I wrote, I wrote down, uh, I need the cross every day in my life. I need forgiveness every day. I need to live on the gospel. I need more compassion for lost people, nor heartfelt compassion. I need more natural impulses to draw people into my house and not just keep them at arm's distance and let the police be their caretakers. That's, a, that's Those of us who live in the neighborhood really struggle with that. Are the police the main caretakers of the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, the greedy, and the drunk? Or, or is the church the main ministry? And I need more abandon for love and less anxiety about will I do it right and will my schedule be messed up and will I lose something, etc. Now, what I want to do in the, in the minutes we have left tonight is look at the text. You want, to, you want to say anything about that or raise any question or make any comment before I leave that story? 
Go ahead, yeah. No, Julian. That is such a great testimony. Doing the urgent need and watching God marvelously work out the details you thought you had to have that time to do. That's the kind of story I need to hear again and again, to have my own unbelief rebuked and my faith stimulated to just trust God with what you thought you had to do. Okay, thank you, Joanne. Now, the text that we did not look at at all this morning or allude to is this one, verses 25 to 35 in in Luke 14. And the question it answers is this one. Jesus in Luke 14 and then again in Luke 15 is doing things and saying things that would make the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the tax collector, the sinners, the harlots, the drunks feel welcome. His arms are open. The judgmentalism is down. And the result of that demeanor is that multitudes of people follow him. So up until this point in chapter 14, he's been in this Pharisee's house talking. Now, great multitudes were going along with him. Now, what do you do when you have vulnerably said to Pharisees that they should love people with dropsy and told Jewish leaders that they should invite over the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you find yourself besieged with such people. What do you say to them? Having been open and generous and winsome and forgiving and accepting, what do you say when the multitudes start getting attracted to that kind of preaching and acting? And this is what he says. You know, there's a lot of talk about grace. And I love grace. I read this morning and it stabilized me all through the morning. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 2.1 I love grace. I survive on grace. I live on grace every day. There's a lot of talk about grace. Grace towards the out cast and grace towards the sinner and grace towards the tax collector and towards the cripple, the lame, the blind, the drunk. But in some contexts where this grace is exalted and celebrated, you don't hear this. You don't hear this word given to people who have been drawn by grace to a wonderfully gracious Savior. But We must somehow figure out how to be the kind of church that receives sinners and eats with them and does not compromise the cost of discipleship. That's what this text is about, the cost of discipleship. So here's what he says to the people that get attracted to the kind of life he's been living and the way he's been teaching in chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now keep in mind, he says things like that to cripples and blind people 
There's no sentimentalism. There's no getting saved by blindness. There's no getting saved by being a cripple. There's no getting saved by being a harlot who's sad about the way she's messed up her life and may have some venereal diseases. That doesn't save anybody. Something happens in the heart that constitutes a salvation, and it's reflected in these ways. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Let's linger here for a minute over this hating, this hating, hate. Hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life. What does that mean? That you cannot be, cannot be my disciple. Maybe I should ask this question first. I was, I was going to ask it later, but you cannot be my disciple there. Cannot be my disciple. And verse 33. So therefore no one can be my disciple. Those three times you get that phrase, be my disciple. What does be my disciple mean? Now I ask, it may seem obvious to you, but we live in a theological arena in America today, which has some amazing twists and turns in it. One of the amazing twists and turns is a two-tier teaching of what Christianity is, First tier being called conversion, second tier being called discipleship, and you can live between one and two and never get to number two in that theology. There are many people today who think becoming a Christian is a low-level act of intellectual espousal of doctrinal truth And you sign on the line that you believe certain facts like he died for your sins and that he's God and that the Bible is true and that you'll go to heaven if you believe that. And that's conversion. And then the rest of preaching and teaching is trying to get people to move to stage two in Christianity so that become disciples. That view would come to this text and say, this is not a text about becoming a Christian. This is a text about becoming a disciple after you've been a Christian for a while and learning over a year or two or three years what real Christianity is. Now, what do you you think about that? I think it's the reason we have a lot of weak and carnal churches. And I think it is dead wrong exegetically for this simple reason. I could show you other texts. I'll go to the simplest one. Luke wrote this, telling what Jesus said. If you do a study in Luke's gospel and his second book, Acts, of what disciple means, you will find it does not mean second stage Christian. And the easiest text to prove that from is Acts 11.26. I believe that's the verse. Acts 11.26. Where it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called, what? Christians. That's Luke's understanding of disciple. 
Disciples are Christians. Christians are disciples. The word disciple in the mouth of Jesus did not mean second stage allegiance to me. I don't know where you are on that, but that if, if, if we don't have that settled, the rest of my teaching will just go right right in the wrong compartment in your in your brain. We are talking about conversion and salvation here. Historically, the church has always understood it that way and only recently. And the motivation for this, let me just give you the motivation to, to be fair to this group. The feeling is that if you say that this has to do with becoming a Christian, number one, you make Christianity dependent on works. That is, you make conversion a work. And two, you ruin assurance of salvation, because if in order to be a Christian, you must hate your brothers, then the question always annoys you, do I hate them? Do I really hate them or do I hate them enough? And so the desire to increase assurance and the desire to preserve grace moves people to say texts like this just can't have to do with becoming a Christian. But we'll work through it for a few minutes here and, and you'll have to decide for yourself whether you think the evidence points in that direction. He says, unless you hate Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. Now, Matthew, when he records a saying like this, he says, you must love me more or you can't be my disciple. Why does Jesus use this word hate? What does hate mean here? In Luke 6:27, he says, um, love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. So Jesus does not like hatred for people. He disapproves of hate and he commends Love, And yet here he uses hate as a kind of startling, shocking way for people that we, by nature, love very, very much. It helps me on my way to understanding to notice that he included my own life here. I got to hate myself, which reminds me of John 12:25. He who loves his life, will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus in John 12, 25 speaks of hating your own life, but then he puts in this little defining element in this world in order that you might have it forever, which means that you really love your life in eternal ways but you hate them in temporal ways, which sheds a lot of light on this to me, because what it says is he's not really asking you to give up on your desire for happiness eternally. And nor would he then be asking you to give up on ultimate good of father and mother and wife and children. He's asking you to act toward yourself in ways that in this life could be incredibly dangerous might cost your life and looks to the world like you're self-opposing. They can't figure this out. You're self-opposing. You take the lowest seat at the party. You invite people over for dinner who can't pay you back. And you are willing to be 
persecuted, according to chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus invites people into his fellowship of persecution and says, some of you they will put in prison and some of you they will kill. So come, follow me. Take up your cross. A cross was an instrument which uh, was used to kill people. So hate your life means take up your cross and follow me on the Calvary road. And if it means your death, it means your death. If it means the denial of this or that, you have died to yourself and you will live forever with me. A third indication of uh, what it means for the family is found in chapter 21, verse 16. Luke 21 16. I just noticed this for the first time this afternoon as I was working on this. Luke 21, he says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will put to death. So what he says here is, If you follow me, something is going to happen in your family, possibly, turn you over to the authorities and have you killed. Or your brothers. So it's the list of people he's got here. Father, mother, and brothers, and kinsmen, and friends are going to hand you over. Which means that becoming a Christian, according to Jesus in that verse, means setting certain things in motion that will alienate you, possibly, from your dearest relatives, such that they are willing to have you killed. And I don't think, therefore, it is an overstatement or out of sync with the radicalness of his call to use the word hate here. Are you willing to take a step out of that family of... Muslim faith or Jewish faith or Hindu faith and know that they might poison you. This is what happens in Pakistan or Afghanistan often when a person is converted and is found out. To say I'm willing to do that doesn't mean, yes, literally that you you hate, you feel. But it, it does mean you choose to let that kind of horrid alienation come and you embrace Christ more than stopping that from happening. You're willing to let that happen in order to have Christ. And so I, I think the point here is discipleship or Christianity means cherishing Christ And what he will be for you more than all that family can be for you. And thus acting in ways that the world will regard as indifference sometimes toward family or callousness. When I was at the team missionary conference a few days ago in Dayton, Tennessee, George Murray, the new director of team, gave a powerful address And he addressed the issue of missionary children education. And he used this text for the pain of sending six-year-olds away to boarding school. You must hate your children at certain times. 
And he struggled, too, with the overstatement of the language. But all the missionaries there knew the pain and knew what the world and what some others often say when you struggle on the mission field to know the best way to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, being faithful to the call of God upon your life to forsake everything and give your life away for unreached people. Then, uh, I think I'll, I was going to tie it in and I'll just point briefly to verse 33. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Give up all his possessions. So here you have to hate uh, mother and father and brothers and sisters in your own life in order to be my disciple. And here you have to give up all your possessions in order to be his disciple. You have to renounce. You have to take leave of. You have to sever your relationship to. Well, now, there are all kinds of evidences in Jesus' own life that disciples didn't always literally forsake everything. It's almost impossible to do that unless you walk around naked. But there must then be a kind of spiritual severing that on a Sunday night at 9.30 would respond to a cold, shivering, drunk, wet, frightened, traumatized young woman as though this is somebody else's house. And it doesn't matter if it gets wet because it doesn't belong to me. It's somebody else's house. And my schedule is somebody else's. And my reputation is somebody else's. It's gone. It's gone. I'm severed. I'm a dead man. I have died with Christ. My life is hid with Christ in God. I own nothing and everything. Something like that's got to happen if we're to live like Jesus is calling us to live in this chapter. So I know good and well that we all have possessions and Zacchaeus gave away half his possessions and and uh, the the women who followed Jesus around and provided his food had possessions from their bounty. They fed Jesus and Jesus took that and was thankful for it. And he went, I mean, just dozens and dozens of stories of how Jesus affirmed people owning things, owning things, which means this is all the more radical. You know, it, it would be clear and simple if it just meant divest yourself of everything you own and walk around naked until you drop dead from starvation and exposure. That's simple. I mean, it would be hard to do, but it's simple to understand and easy to figure out. This is not easy to figure out. And it's, it, it, it requires a deep wrestling with God. It requires a spiritual involvement with Him. It requires a daily dying and searching out what that means. It, it's not simple. And He wants that kind of involved wrestling with Him. Now, um, the last thing I want us to look at is these two little parables here. One is in verses 28. To uh, 30, that one right there. 
And the other one is in verses 31 down uh, to 32. So there's the second one. Let's look at these. And what what is he doing here? So after he says you have to hate your loved ones to be my disciple, and he's going to say as a result of this, therefore, that you need to give away everything you've got, be disconnected from it, renounce it. Now he says, uh, for which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What is he saying? Here's one way to put it. It's better to be the rich young ruler than to be Demas. Now, not everybody here knows who Demas is. Second uh, Timothy chapter four verse. I forget the verse. Um, Ten. Demas, Paul says, who according in Colossians was a a servant with Paul. Demas in love with this world, has forsaken me. Jesus said, it's better to be the rich young ruler who heard the price and said, can't pay it, and walked away. Demas heard the price and said, sure, I'll sign on. And a few years later, he looks at what he's left and he says, mm, it isn't worth it. And leaves. Leaves the faith. Maybe, I don't know, he may have come back. But Paul just left us with that. Demas has forsaken me. There's a principle in Scripture that the more you know, the harsher will be your judgment. The more spiritual privileges you have, the more strict will be the accountability that you're held to. Better in hell not to have professed any faith than to have professed faith and fallen away as a fake. This is tough. This is, in, this is very tough evangelism here. What he's saying is, uh, before you sign on to be my disciple... Um, sit down, sit down, be hasty here, don't run, sit down and calculate the cost. The Christian life is like building a tower. We need a massive foundation. Day by day, by grace, we grow. But you must sit down and ask, well, what is this? What is this life called Christianity? And the cost is significant. You gotta hate. You gotta leave everything. You gotta be so much in love with Jesus that you're disconnected and that you're on the Calvary road and that you love heaven. We shouldn't rush people into decisions for Christ. Don't rush them. Don't play light and easy as though they have all the time in the world. I sat under my father's wonderful evangelistic preaching and uh, 
He warned many times, telling stories of young people who had had car wrecks on their way home from evangelistic meetings and so on. And I was duly frightened as a young boy that the time's short and you never know when you might drop dead or lightning strike you. Don't give people the false impression they've got all the time in the world to reckon with whether it's worth living for. But don't just quick, quick on the beach. Get them to sign a car or pray a prayer. Don't. Talk to them. Might be a half an hour. Might be a day. Or if there's somebody you know in your neighborhood, it might be weeks. It might be if they're resistant a long time. But they need to know. They need to know what Christianity is. Before I ask the key question, which I'm going to close with, what are you calculating? What are you looking for to see if you can do it? Who can do it? What is the calculation? I'm going to come back to that. But let's look at the, let's look at the next parable. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel? Whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000 against him. With 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, you cannot be my disciple unless you give away everything. So, in the first parable, the issue is the expenses... And in the second parable, the issue is the perils. You're going to get clobbered here. Can you win? I would say to the first one, don't build if you can't finish. And the second one, don't fight if you can't win. That's what he's saying. Don't build if you can't finish and don't fight if you can't win. So sit down, reckon with whether you can finish your tower and win your war. And now that leaves us with this final concluding question. What in the world are you reckoning on? What are you taking stock of? What what should... Suppose you have somebody now who has asked you about the gospel. You shared with them the gospel and then you tell them, you know... I'm not calling you to a bed of roses. I'm calling you to follow Jesus Christ and take up your cross and forsake everything in your life, if God should so will, literally, and give yourself wholly over to him. And it might mean ruptures in your family relationship, and it doesn't mean guaranteed health, and it might mean persecution, and it might mean loss of face at work. You need to know these things. He is a glorious Savior, but it is costly. And you say some things like that. And they say... So you want me to take stock? Yes, take stock. Sit down, reckon, calculate. All right? What am I supposed to take stock of? What are you asking me to do? What are we asking them to do? Here's my answer. I have five answers to that question. Number one. According to verses 16 and 17 and verses 25, no, the parable just before this, wherever it starts, down through verse 24, we must tell them, we are inviting you to a banquet. 
And I said, it didn't sound like a banquet. It sounded like a tower building and war. I said, oh, that's true. But first it's a banquet. First it's a banquet. Believe that it's a banquet. Issue number one, do you believe Jesus has a banquet? Second answer. Verse 23, God wants his house full and takes extraordinary measures to get it full, which means he's not up there in the host's bedroom saying, I'll see if they can get in. I'll just see if they can get in. I'm going to make it real hard for them to get in. That's not the attitude of the host at all. The host is saying, find people who are willing to come in. My house is going to be full. I want my house full. And, and in the next three Sundays, we are going to see a father's heart that is incredibly aggressive to get his house full. So that's the second thing you tell him. Look, I've said it's hard, but I'm telling you, God is aggressive to get you in. Third answer. Verse 14. There is a reward at the resurrection that will be worth it all. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I got out uh, Matthew Henry today. I wanted to see what Matthew Henry 300 years ago wrote about these parables. And he said something so good. I hope this sticks. He said, Satan shows his best and hides his worst. Christ shows his best and his worst. Why does Satan show his best? You will not surely die, Adam and Eve. That's his best. Half-truth. Subtle, deceptive half-truths is the best he's got to offer. You will not surely die. And you will go to hell and suffer with me forever. He doesn't say that. Why not? Because, here's what Matthew Henry says, because his best will not counterbalance his worst and Christ's will. That's why Jesus is not afraid to tell you his worst. Here's a worst case scenario. You got to hate your mom and you got to leave everything you own. Worst case scenario. It might cost you the horrid rupture in a family and alienation and death. It might cost you destitution. That's my worst, worst case scenario. Now, let me tell you the other side. There's a resurrection. And you will be repaid for everything. There's a banquet that begins now in fellowship with me and never ends and gets richer and richer and richer and richer. There's a father who is aggressive to get his house full. Two more answers and we're done. In chapter 22, verse 32, suppose the person you're witnessing to now and they've heard the bad news and they've heard the good news and they're struggling with whether the good news is good enough to sustain them in the bad news. And they say... But I don't feel like I could do that. I, I, don't, I mean, in me, I don't feel like I could leave everything. I don't feel like I could hate. I don't feel like I could suffer. I don't feel like I could be persecuted. I don't feel strong at all. Is there any 
help for me? So what you're calculating, what they're really calculating is their faith in the resurrection and in the banquet and in And then the second thing, they're calculating the sufficiency of Jesus. My, you say to them, Christ's grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12.10. Or if you want to stay in Luke, you go over to chapter 22, verse 32, where Satan is pounding on Peter. Pushing him through the sieve so that he can pull all of his faith out of him. Jesus sees this happening and he says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you turn, strengthen your brethren. Jesus prays for us when we're building the tower. Jesus praying for us. And when Jesus prays for tower supplies, they come. And Jesus is praying for us when we go up against our enemy with 20,000. And when Jesus prays for air cover, it comes. So the issue here, the person you're witnessing to is not native resources. I can do this. Oh yeah, I can do this. I can build a tower. I can, I can fight. You say, you cannot. You could begin to beat Satan. He's got 20,000 troops. You don't even have 10,000. And the only way you're going to make it is if Jesus prays for you, intercedes for you at the Father, pleads his righteousness for you, and calls down from the Father incredible blessing upon you. And you say, he'll do that for me? He sure will. Believe him. That's what we're calculating. We're calculating grace, powers of grace, sufficiency of grace, and whether we're willing to rely on it in times of of great struggle and pain. Or you could say, answer number 5, chapter 11, verse 13, where uh, Jesus in Luke says, uh, ask you to receive, seek you to find, knock and the door will be open, for if you have a... Uh, what father of you who has a son who asks him for a loaf of bread will give him a stone or egg will give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven... Now, what's Luke's form? Give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So you say to the person you're witnessing to, you read him that text, and you say, that text promises you that if you, by faith, ask God for the Holy Spirit... That's God, the Spirit of God. He'll come. He'll come on your life. He'll fill you. And when the Spirit of the living God is in you and on you, you can build that tower and you can defeat that enemy, not in your strength, but in his strength. So, having showed the worst and that there's a tower to build and there's a fight to be fought, The calculation we must do is not a works calculation. Going back to the theological problem I raised at the beginning, do you need to make discipleship a a second-level Christianity that some people arrive at and others don't? No, because we're not talking about works and earning and merit here at all. When this person sits down to calculate, can I do the Christian life? The answer is no. No. 
Can I do the Christian life? Can I do the tower building? Can I do the warfare that it takes to live the Christian life? The answer is no. And you're not asking them to calculate their energy or their power or their intelligence or their religious background or any feeling that they might have right now about potential that lies within them. You're asking them to calculate grace, the all-sufficiency of the grace of God. And are they willing to embrace the all-satisfying grace of God as a treasure more than parents, more than wives, more than lands, more than oxen, more than everything? And if they say, "He he is more, he is more, I need him more than I need all of that. I will accept him. Then you have a Christian. You have a Christian. Let's pray. Father, bless our fellowship as we go out together now into the fellowship hall and eat together. Make us alert to one another. Make us vulnerable to one another. We're all struggling with the failures of this past week and we need to build each other up to get ready for a new tower-building warfare against the devil tonight and tomorrow. And we know that we can't build it and we can't fight it without you. And we are wholly reliant upon your grace. Help us now to trust you and to turn away from all the vain confidence that we sometimes have in our things or ourselves. And I pray for my own self now that there might be an occasion to meet this young woman and that there might be a follow-up at HCMC for David tomorrow and that everybody in this room right now who's thinking about somebody that you did something to this week would be aggressive going out to the hedges and the highways to compel them to calculate the worth of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.